0: of Liberty, and you may just sit this one
1: out. Be a terrible waste if you did. Hello and welcome in, friends, to this edition of Fusebox, hereby deemed socially relevant and morally important by the snorting trolls of programming. This is indeed number 44, The Lap of Liberty. And I'm your constitutional connoisseur of conundrums, Mark Rose, joined by the always politically correct Milk Canes at the controls over there. Well, thank you kindly. So,
0: uh, you've been following that uh, political scene lately?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> to be uh, completely honest, no, no. Or at least as little as possible. OK, well, it's, you know, it's becoming some kind of grotesque, insane clown show lately, and I'm not really sure how to get off this thing. I, I
0: hear you. It's a bit easier for me, though, as I don't believe any of them. <laughs> the second they spend one month in any political office that means anything, they become flesh bots, And then it's... Business as usual in the smoke and mirror factory.
1: Well, you know, our our, our friends around the the globe are looking wide eyed at this uh, political process in the U.S. and wondering, have we all just lost our minds over here, or what? I mean, aren't aren't we supposed to be the beacon of Sane leadership? (laughs) Not in a hell
0: of a long time, I'm sorry to say.
1: Seriously. (laughs) After Mr. Trump burns himself out, which will be soon. Because even in this cartoon, uh, that character has uh, run its course of ink. But uh, after he vaporizes into pure whimsy, what are they going to do? Be like Bugs Bunny and pull a jackhammer out of their pants in terms of, uh, you know, a new candidate? <laughs> this is crazy.
0: You know, uh, I think I'd rather vote for Maybe we could start a write-in campaign. Hey, put uh, Mothra on there as V.
1: <sighs> oh, don't tempt me. This truly is the most bizarre election process I have ever seen another case of truth being stranger than fiction. I mean, really, sometimes it feels like we're all in some crazy graphic novel that Netflix just picked up. Uh, aren't we? (laughs) Well, we may well be. We may well be. Uh, And uh, speaking of archives... You you may recall that... uh, on the last program, I uh, had mentioned that I was fiddling through some um, archival stuff recently, and... Uh... Looking for filler? <laughs> no. Actually, I was looking for an interview we conducted with the uh, banjo player extraordinaire, Bela Fleck, as he had some remarkable things to say about a bunch of stuff that's still um, very current. But, uh, I stumbled upon a whole raft of things from the, uh, extremely rare and virtually unknown Area 51 radio show we did on AM radio for a while, albeit a short while, but a while nonetheless, and there are, uh, there are some gems in there, and, uh, we'll sprinkle them in from time to time to feature in that Area 51 archive segment, um... I mean, 25 years ago, and it's still funny. Well, it's funny to me, anyway. Yeah,
0: but we all know you have a drinking problem, so uh, how reliable an endorsement is that?
1: Duly noted. No, I think you will uh, all find something of amusement in there. So did you find that banjo guy, then? Well, you know, I'm still looking for that, although I did uh, locate an excerpt of that uh, interview that's um, pretty good. But I really want to revisit the whole interview. He, 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 was, he was such a nice guy and extremely humble. And, and uh, at the time of this interview, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones were a pretty successful band and, uh, when they uh, come together to do that.
0: Yep. Sinister Minister. It's a track that got a lot of airplay back in the day.
1: Yeah, that was a memorable track indeed. Back when you actually would hear stuff like that on the FM air. Alas, now it seems we have the sound of.
0: The preceding editorial comments do not reflect the views or opinions of staff or management.
1: Yeah, they oh, do. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. They do yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: The show for everybody, but not everybody will like it.
1: The following preview has been approved for all audiences. Rage has a new face.
0: Twisted and misshapen, a face masking a deeper anger, a darker hate. A hate that is enormously large and massive in it's colossally huge and gigantic bigness. Yes, rage has a new fate.
1: Wait, what? That doesn't make sense.
0: Yes, it does.
1: No, it doesn't. A hate that is enormously large and massive in it's colossally huge and gigantic bigness? What? (laughs) that's just stupid.
0: You're stupid.
1: No, I'm not.
0: Yes, you are.
1: No, I'm not.
0: And your hair is stupid, too.
1: No, it's not. That... You... This whole thing... I... I'm telling Mom. I just can't stand working with amateurs. I, I don't know what... The...
0: Yes. Rage has a new face. Timo's World.
1: Yes, indeed, gentle listeners. Timo will be smashing his way back into your innocent ears next time Fusebox convenes with an adventure entitled Sushi Tsunami, and we'll leave that to your fecant imaginations to ponder the possibilities therein. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
2: If we could just really chill with our bias against you know, sex and sexuality and sex workers. We could actually help the real victims.
1: So we have a most thought-provoking guest interview coming up next with uh, writer, activist, and stripper L. Stanger that I promise will have you rethinking what you think you know about that occupation.
0: Writers? Yeah, they're a sordid lot for sure. (laughs)
1: Well, I was talking about the profession of stripping But you actually may have something there on writers But uh, be that as it may uh, We have here the first of four segments we did with Elle um, Coming up shortly I dated a stripper once Oh, was that one of your incognito tours of the Moroccan interzone or... uh...
0: Bayonne, New Jersey (laughs) I was... uh... Doing time at an AM station there for a while and met this gal from a club that the PD liked a lot. She was a hoot. She could do things with a $5 bill that defy the laws of gravity, and maybe science,
1: too. Yeah, well, see, that's kind of the stereotypical situation that we hope to rewire with this interview. Not to say Elle is not gifted in the performance area of her occupation. But uh, that's merely one of her many fields of interest. And add to that a degree in criminal justice, and we have a fascinating woman.
0: Sounds like it could be a volatile combination to me.
1: Let's meet L. Stanger on this... The Fusebox Interview. Well, thank you, Al, for joining us here on the show. We um, appreciate you taking time out to share a little bit about just what the hell it is you're, uh, you're doing thank <laughs> and you, Mark. the myriad things you're involved in here. And maybe we could just take it back to, like, uh, square one. Okay. Tell, tell me a little bit about, particularly, because mm-hmm. I, I read in the bio that you had um, uh, originally or tread the path of criminal justice. Um, yeah.
2: So I as a little girl, I wanted to do street level law enforcement. Then I thought I wanted to do federal stuff because you know it's fancier and (laughs) I don't know why. You know, you're a kid, you're like, I'm gonna be an astronaut or a firefighter or a cop or whatever. Mm. So I pursued two degrees, criminal justice, a minor in psychology. I took most of my classes and schooling down in Southern California where I'm from, but I graduated in 2013 from Portland State and it's interesting because it's it's definitely a, a male-dominated field, and I'm I'm a female with a pretty slight build anyway. So I had some wonderful instructors that were former cops. Uh, my two favorites. One had been a officer in the Bronx in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, retired in the early 90s. So he had all the stories. And then the other one was a very small man, like small build. Uh, He was a San Francisco cop around the same time, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, So there was a lot happening. You know, you think about the sensationalism of serial killers. Um, You had Son of Sam in New York, Mm -hmm. which Bronx cop dealt with. Um, And so he had, of course... His insight was like, "Oh, that guy was a patsy." It was actually he never heard the dog talking to him, which you can read about now. It's interesting just to to see how much American history like we really don't know when you talk to the people who were involved. Um, hmm. That's a different conspiracy, yes. you know. Story, um, the San Francisco one. So he was—he was a little man. He was short, but both of my favorite cops, you know, they took a liking to me because I was a great student. You know, if it's turning a ten-page paper, then I'd write twelve, whatever. And they were always very proactive in supporting all of the students that were very diverse. Like, oh, women in law enforcement tend to have lower rates of conflict during arrests. Hmm. So. Female cops, there's a a lesser incidence of of conflict and violence during arrest, which is great because I don't want to get killed or or injured. But just, (laughs) you know, it was a lot of focus on community policing, conflict resolution, how you approach things, uh, a a non-militaristic style of approach. Uh, Portland and San Diego, uh, San Diego where I'm from, they're kind of known for having those attitudes as far as community policing. Uh, And then I had an instructor down there who, he was a former CHP, California Highway Patrol. He was a deeply religious Mormon man who um, pigeonholed me right away where he was like, well, tattoos are indicative of a lifestyle. He actually said in front of the class once that um, women should never be cops. Mm. He said this to his class. Great. So it was very interesting in the same institution, Mm. in the same, you know, industry institution that you would have such a spectrum of beliefs influencing the students. There are some horrific, monstrous cops and doctors and strippers and podcast hosts, you know. I think that it's a very tricky, dangerous situation anytime you're entrusting humans with that kind of power. But it's also, I can't really imagine us living in a world where there is nobody to call in the middle of the night if someone's breaking in, you know, 911. Or I've been followed multiple times where I called uh, 911 and a police car showed up because somebody was actively following me in their car. I had domestic disputes where... My boyfriend at the time had pulled a shotgun out of the closet and held it to my head, and and I was screaming because I was hoping somebody would call the police because I couldn't, and nobody did. Yeah, no it's big deal. Right, yeah, it's uh, So it's interesting because my age, I'm 29, I mean all ages, it's important to have that fuck the police mentality and attitude about some things because we need to challenge the status quo. We need to, to watch the watchers. But I also don't like the immediate... Um, vilification of anybody in that type of 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 background because I mean I've had my life saved by people in law enforcement and I know that that's that's what they're intended for absolutely yeah so I after I completed my schooling I had already started stripping in 2009 because I graduated in 2013 so when I started stripping in June of 2009 uh, it was pretty much right after the recession. I had a few years in upper level like retail management, and I say upper level like assistant management or management of shops. I had uh, helped to manage a porn shop for a few years. I had been an assistant or a supervisor in just like random mall jobs. And when you're 1920, like that's not bad sure. for a resume. Mm-hmm. But I had been working full- time since I was 16. I had you know, great, great shit on my resume. I'd worked in a pharmacy in high school. I had done hospice care. I was always working at least one, sometimes two jobs. I'm living on my own and nobody would hire me because the recession hit so hard. So Mm -hmm. it was me being 21, maybe almost 22 years old and I was newly married and I lived in Portland for a year and I suddenly was jobless and I looked at my bank accounts and I told my husband at the time, I was like, okay, so I'm going to apply at every retail, everything I can. Uh, and if I don't have something lined up in two weeks, I'm going to audition to strip because I'm not going to take money out of my savings. We can't go in debt. So 2009. So I auditioned, I had researched the clubs. I got hired. I started working. I fell in love with stripping and I realized, Uh, maybe six months in that it wasn't just going to be a temporary job and then get back to my conventional plan. Like my plan had changed. Mm -hmm. So from stripping, I get the, the fulfillment of, I think what I wanted in doing law enforcement where I'm interacting with total strangers in a very intimate setting um, a lot of them are inebriated. A lot of them are under duress or tense or uncomfortable. But I don't have to be held to the same conventional, I guess, requirements of, of documenting, like writing reports. I mean, I could write reports all day long, but I don't have to. I don't have to be seen in a very publicly visible uniform. Um, I'm not such a huge liability to myself. Death on the job was never really a concern because if you look at statistics, waste management, workers, trash handlers are more likely to die on the job than cops.
1: That's Mm -hmm. an odd statistic. Mm -hmm.
2: It's very true. Um, Or land maintenance, outdoor, you know, cutting down trees. Right. So the getting hurt on the job thing wasn't really an issue.
1: Now That's interesting because I don't think most people would perceive that.
2: No, they don't. I mean, suicide, cops are more likely to kill Mm -hmm. themselves by their own gun than to be killed on the job. Uh, It's a very, very depressing, seems like very hard industry. And I've dated a couple cops and I've known some. And so anyway, so by stripping, I get to meet people and have these great stories and, you know, be grossed out or enlightened or amused or horrified. But then I can go home with cash in hand and take a shower and eat a burrito. (laughs) And I don't have to write reports or or show up in, in court or whatever or watch people's families have the same recurring issues over and over again, you know, like the harder stuff. I think I don't have to deal with, um, another parallel between law enforcement and sex work or, you know, stripping is they're both highly stigmatized fields. So in TV, you know, you have the good cop, the bad cop, and it's either very much respected or not. Mm -hmm. Um, For strippers, you're pretty much always portrayed as a victim like maybe a sexy victim because mm-hmm. the media loves to sexualize right. victims so there is a odd horror princess dichotomy that i experience whether it's in talking to people or living on social media or existing in the club i mean the people who i meet either adore and are very find me very attractive or interesting or their misogyny is very ingrained where they can't, you know, they hate me. They hate that they're there, but they they don't know that. So they hate me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same, you know, it's the same with cops. It's either, oh, thank you, you're my savior, or fuck, you die. Yes. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And I've often said that the parallels work so much where I wish that if sex workers and law enforcement could work together, we could do a really great service. Because we do interact with a lot of people where, you know, if I'm sitting in a private room with this low level, you know, Mexican uh, cocaine cartel guy and he wants to talk about how he accidentally like shot his own car when he was cleaning his gun, which was a story I heard I'm like, oh, God, some people should not have guns um, but or you know, vote. or uh, vote. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but so he's unloading about his day and, you know, or I had a guy, uh, two guys that told me that And I wrote about this in a column actually uh, years ago for exotic But these two guys I was playing stupid because I could tell us what they wanted and they told me hey our friend over there um, We're gonna we're gonna burglarize his house later. Like we're staying with him. He has some shit that we want we're gonna get it and I actually Got them to show me one of their IDs <laughs> <laughs> because i i was like okay thinking like how do i report this Uh how do i save this poor guy or prevent this from happening so i i was like oh you don't seem like you're from new york you know blah 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 whatever showed me his id so then i reported it to tip line Mm -hmm. um i i don't even know whatever happened to them but yeah so it's like can you imagine if we could just helpfully narc (laughs) On the actual bad guys. Yeah. Because the good, you know, the cops that I know, it's been a while, but I interviewed Detective Brendan McGuire. He heads up the sex crimes and I want to say trafficking portion. He does not care about women who choose to escort. That's not his issue. Yes, it's illegal, but ethically that's not a concern. He gives a shit about the people who are, you know, indentured, slaves, people that are shipped over here from wherever the hell, and they're working to pay off their supposed debts, but their sex slaves are being trafficked. Mm -hmm. I am not a trafficking victim. He understands the difference. And the media also loves to sensationalize the difference and conflate the two. If we could just really chill with our bias against, you know, sex and sexuality and sex workers, we could actually help the real victims.
0: Holy carp, man. She's for real.
1: Yeah. See what I mean? She speaks from an informed understanding and uh, she does a lot more than talk about these issues. As we will explore in the next part of our interview with Elle, she uh, discusses how she was instrumental in getting House Bill 359 passed in Oregon, which directly relates to live performing in any variety and uh, a host of other things.
0: So, uh, she wanted to be a... a
1: Yeah, an interesting choice. And as it turns out, not random. Totally makes sense. You know, as to how having an understanding of the law relates to your industry.
0: And uh, how to deal with wackos who might have some other ideas about audience participation, if you know what I mean.
1: I think what's valuable here is a a thing we've attempted to show in a couple of interviews lately. And that is that it's uh, unskillful... To judge folks by a profession or outward appearances or whatever. As we truly don't have a clue what they're about until we engage with that person. We might learn something amazing, like with Elle here. Or they could just be a psycho in waiting.
0: (laughs) But no, I get what you're saying. Maybe we should uh, get her to run for
1: Prez. I can't speak for L on that one, but uh, one thing is for sure, speaking from a place of informed experience is far more valuable than uh, knee-jerk reactions to sensitive issues or conditions, which is what we really do get most of the time.
0: You know, I was uh, just reading an article that was talking about the various groups that have formed to battle gender intolerance in uh, one form or another. And come to find out that some of these groups are still as intolerant about some recent gender ideas as uh, the idiots they're trying to convince. Crazy, man.
1: Yeah, I think Elle goes into a little of that on her next part, but uh, to quote our patron saint, Frank Zappa, people are dumb all over, and uh, we're drawing lines in the sand over here, and Someone else is drawing a line around us, and someone else is drawing one around them, and before you know it, we've got some kind of Jackson Pollock-looking display divining absolutely nothing. And
0: I get, too, that a strip club may not be everybody's idea of a good time. Although, for the life of me, I don't know why it wouldn't. But, uh, I dug what she said about the whole, uh, whore princess thing. I think she's spot on.
1: Yeah, the sexualized victim thing, yeah. I I think we have to look a wee bit deeper into our stereotypical assumptions here. It's true that um, our media, the collective, has done uh, much to uh, perpetrate this stereotype, even go beyond and glamorizing it.
0: Yeah, straight into torture porn.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, actually. You know, I'm thinking about films like Last House on the Left by Sean Cunningham, or even uh, Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There, there is an element, some would say more than an element, of uh, brutality, particularly against women in those and many other films of that ilk. That uh, kind of teeters on the precarious edge of uh, glamorizing the situation, making it somehow okay. I don't know. Still loves me some
0: Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS, though.
1: Yeah, but dear Ilsa has stepped out over the line many times.
0: Yeah, but she's an equal opportunity abuser. Men get the exact same treatment with my gal Ilsa.
1: Is that meant to be comforting? We've taped thousands of tiny brine shrimp to the steering wheel of this Winnebago. But it's to prove a point... And with that, we will call it a show, dear friends, and I I want to give fully sanctified thanks to our participants on this edition of Fusebox, Rob Askew, Jeff Pollard, and of course to Elle Stanger for giving us the opportunity to chat, more with Elle on our next program, as well as a new review from the video vixen herself, Trista Perez. I know that will make you happy, Mr. Keynes. Don't start with me. <laughs> Thanks, of course, to the always above-board Milk Canes over there. I saw what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, to you, friends, for pushing play on this edition of Fusebox. I have been your non-elected representative, but I'm a super superdelegate anyway, Mark Rose. Saying, uh, until... Our next cartoon. Pew.